is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. My name is Rijk van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to leading investors and business leaders about their investments and we also take a peek into their personal investment portfolios. We try to get a sense of how they analyze investment opportunities, what shares and assets they invest in and whether they have more hits than misses. And the idea is to identify a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Patrick Mathidi. He is one of the founders of Aluwani Capital Partners. The business was founded in 2015, and he is currently the head of equity and balanced funds at the firm. Before he co-founded the business, he was the head of equity and balance funds at Momentum Asset Management for nine years. And before that, he was the chief dealer at Investec Asset Management. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Let's kick off with your background. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to investments? Yeah, good evening, Eric, and thanks for having me. And I was born and I ran across the freeway in Alex. I mean, I grew to not 50 years uh, sort of ago. And then I grew up uh, pretty much in Soweto, uh, where I went through schooling. And my first exposure to investments it actually came through while I was saving articles. So I trained as an accountant, but uh, I, mean, I have since uh, sort of moved away and have been practicing as an investor uh, you know, for the last you know, sort of like 20 plus years or so. And it was during you know, the early days of my uh, articles uh, with uh, the audit firm at Deloitte, where we were assigned to auditing uh, you know, financial services firms. And in that uh, mix, you know, there was a stockbroker called Simpson McKee, which was one of our clients. And then typically with audits, you know, you go and do sort of uh, this uh, script counts at some dark vault. But somehow I managed to make my way onto the trading floor of the JSE, you know, at the Diagonal Street, you know, way, way back uh, when they still had an open up crash system. And then I was blown away. I mean, I was fascinated that, you know, you had these people who would gather, uh, you know, every day and scream and shout at each other. And then somehow there was a market and somehow buyers and, fly and sellers could find each other and somehow they would get price, you know, for the going of stocks. So, so from then on, you know, I was pretty much set in terms of what I wanted to do. And after completing articles, then I found my way down to Cape Town. And as I said, you know, in your intro, then ended up at the trading desk with uh, then Investing Asset Management and now 91. That has been an interesting journey. How old were you when you were on the floor in Diagonal Street there in the Joburg City Center? Because that has been a, a long time ago. They've obviously since moved to Santon. Yeah, so this was the sort of the mid-90s, uh, I'd say just before, you know, uh, the uh, 94 elections. I think I was sort of my early 20s, uh, to be frank. It was actually my first job, you know, as, as an accountant, a training accountant. And when did you take the big step to use your own money to invest in a share or in a company? So, <laughs> interesting story. So, when I moved down to Cape Town, it coincided with uh, the listings booms of the sort of uh, the mid to late 90s. 
And I'm there, you know, you know things are fairly fluid. You're allowed to invest you now with your own money. So all these new listings coming about, you know, we would participate and actually, you know, we had full exposure and myself being on the training desk. And yeah, I, mean, I can't remember my first share, but I remember names like, you know, the Business Bank, uh, which was a bank uh, that was set up by the previous finance minister, I think it was Pete Levenberg or so. Literally no assets, you know, no track record, but because there was this euphoria in terms of uh, new listings, anything that had a bank name or financial services and IT, you know, was the way to go. So, so participating in a, in a slew of uh, new listings. And I, I remember at some stage I had, you know, a hundred thousand rand or so in my peer account and thinking, you know, at this rate, I could actually uh, retire by the time I turned 40, you know, which was obviously another 20 years or so to go. I uh, needless to say, I'm still working uh, and, 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 and that retirement, you know, is still a few years away. Now, the business bank story was an interesting one. After the listing, that share price performed like a house on fire, but it didn't end that well. How long did you keep the share for? No, I mean, we, we were literally trading, eh? so, so I think I probably kept it, I don't know, maybe a, a few weeks or months in a post-listing, and then you know, sold out and then chased the next listing and that came about. So at that stage, I mean, to be frank, I was more a trader than an investor. So my investment, you know, sort of uh, prowess actually came in a lot later in my career. So when did you make the transition from being a trader, which means you trade quite often and would buy and sell on short-term market movements? So when did you start to become or make the transition to become a long-term investor? So what happened is, you know, uh, I think we will all recall, I mean, we then had the major market uh, blow out of the late. 90s. I think it was Argentina defaulting and there were some issues with Russia. And obviously, the turn of the century, you know, with uh, the uh, dot com era, all of those IT stocks literally sold out, right? That had been uh, sort of on fire leading up to the turn of uh, 2000. So after that, uh, I guess, you know, with the portfolio having shrunk, you know, from the peak of 100,000 or so, I think I was left with about, about 20, 30,000. And I then decided, let me just put this into unit trust, safe, you know, there's a bit of diversity there. And then also the rules actually quite, you know, changed quite a bit where PA trading became a lot more stringent. I guess, you know, the whole management of conflict of interest issues. And then I guess one with also being busy, you know, with work, you know, the time to actually have to trade for yourself, you know, just became less and less. So it became a lot easier and a lot more prudent uh, to then actually start investing through unit trust. And when I then left also um, an investor, I took my pension money, I put it in a preservation fund in one of the unit trusts, and I continued to invest you know, on a monthly basis, which actually turned out to be a very good strategy, also from a tax you know, point of view, because you, know, you do get a few tax breaks when you invest it that way. And I've kind of been you know, doing that over the last while. And then uh, now lately, I invest again in a through structures with, uh, you know, with uh, one of the wealth managers where, you know, you've got some downside protection. Uh, you've got a you know, sort of a guaranteed outcome uh, so as long as the market sort of behaves within a set of asset parameters. And in that way, you know, you, you, again, you know, it, it takes my mind away, you know, from my own personal portfolio, but more onto client minus where that has become my day job. And part of my pension money actually is in one of my funds, uh, which is not a requirement for my job point of view, but it's actually quite encouraged. And that way, you know, you are aligned with the clients in terms of what you do for them, which would also be good for your own money, you know, given that you invest alongside with them. 
Did you have a mentor early in your career, especially when you started to invest or trade? Not really. I think the fact that I worked for an asset management company, I was surrounded by other investors or other professional investors whose day jobs were actually managing money. So there was an element of, you know, I guess I'm in a monkey see, monkey do. You know, just because you are in that environment and something it's actually rubbed off. And then some of the aspirations, uh, given what I now do today, uh, was influenced, you know, by some of those uh, sort of investors back then. So, for example, I'm an investor, you know, you still have guys like uh, John Bickard. I think back then we had a, a guy called Red Hammond uh, who ran the Investec Amazing Companies Fund, you know, which at that stage I think was the largest and then at some point also the best performing. So those are the people you actually grew up looking up to. And, and the fact that, you know, they were in your midst, you know, it meant that it was very easy to pick up a few nuggets along the way in terms of how they, how they do things. But certainly, they, you know, they were very influential in my career in terms of wanting to be a portfolio manager. I think many retail investors are very greedy and they are also very fearful of sharp market corrections. Now, you were quite young when the 1998 financial crash happened. I think shortly after that, the dot-com bubble also burst. And I'm sure when you lost money during both those two market corrections, how did that impact you as a young investor? And did it change your investment approach when things turned back to, in quotation marks, normal? Absolutely. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, from being a almost like a gunslinger, you know, trader type, the market certainly did handle me. You know, those are two crises, especially given that you know, I had you know these uh, aspirations of early retirement. So you know, some reality actually came back at bear. I absolutely remember changing my stance from being, I guess, a trail to being more an investor where discipline and consistency in terms of just putting money away, you know, into unit trust and just making contributions and almost forgetting about it, you know, and not watching, you know, stocks on a daily basis and trying to second guess, you know, which way is going to move, but just being in the market. So you probably heard, you know, the, the saying that, you know, it's, it's time in the market that matters and I was timing the market. So all of those are sayings. You know, I learned and actually started to implement. And I must confess that it actually worked reasonably well for me, uh, given you know how things have turned out. So I'm still an investor, more so an investor than a trader. But even my way of investing, uh, it, it's a lot more patient. You know, I'm not trying to chase the latest Fed. I try and buy things that I understand, things that I would be happy to put my clients' money in, and things that even if they don't work out you know, over the next three months, six months, I sleep better knowing that, you know, there's a good quality company that, you know, what uh, sort of a loose capital and uh, from something horribly going wrong uh, that perhaps one has overlooked. So, so you know, again, I mean, time in the market actually makes a big difference. And then also from a personal temperament point of view, and I think this is very important for any investor out there, you need to know yourself in terms of what kind of person are you? You know, are you a panicker? Are you level-headed? Are you a chaser or are you happy to sit back and let you know things unfold? So character and discipline are much more important than outright IQ. Now, being smart is, is good. It means you can understand things very quickly. But when it comes to investing, sometimes it's all about patience you know, than trying to overthink things and trying to be you know, too fancy for your own good. But that's a difficult thing to do, especially for young amateur investors. I know my son is invested in a 
few companies. He's currently 16 years old, but he looks at that portfolio value every single day. <laughs> and whenever there's a, a red number, he's actually quite upset. So it's not that easy to take emotion out of investments and to trust the long-term trend of most good quality companies. How would you advise young investors to overcome those concerns and behavior? Nick, I'm not trying to make it sound if it was very simple. You know, I mean, obviously along the way, one has made a few bad mistakes, especially starting to end because one is impatient and one can't, you know, sort of take, uh, you know, the, the share price and, and, and the performance. But, but I think the key thing, even as a professional investor, you need to be very, very clear on why you're buying a certain company, right? So don't confuse share price that you see on the screen with value, right? Have a clear sense of, of where value is uh, in terms of how you look at stocks, how you understand the business. And once you're comfortable with that value, the share price may go up and down, but until it gets to that level where you feel that this is actually good value, then don't touch it. You know, sit back. If it seems like it's not going away, rather focus on the reason why you bought it. See if anything has changed fundamentally. Has the you know the business changed? Has there been any changes that perhaps you did not take into account the first time around when actually buying into it? And if nothing significant has changed, then don't do anything. But sit back and the market will reward you accordingly in time. Patience or impatience, I find, is the biggest enemy against investors. We tend to sell too quickly because we're trying to chase the next one, but then you end up, you know, forever chasing and never fully harvesting the upside that perhaps uh, with a little bit of patience one could actually have. But not all good companies perform like that, and I'm referring to their share prices. I've spoken to many professional investors, and they are happy if six out of 10 of their investments outperform or perform really, really well. It is also a skill to get rid of poor performing companies. But when you have a long-term strategy, it is not that easy to identify the point at which you need to sell those shares. How do you approach really bad investments or bad performing investments in a portfolio? Look, I think it's two things. One is, you know, doing badly, to understand why it's doing badly is disappointing because you missed something or has there something new that has come up that, you know, fundamentally shifts your view on that company. If it is the matter, then, you know, you just need to buy the bullet, cut your losses and then move on. Right. But if, if it's underperforming for other reasons that are external to the business that have got nothing to do with your own assessment of where value is, then you need the discipline you know, to be there. In fact, if it's underperforming, you know, difficult as it may sound, that actually presents a buying opportunity because nothing has changed. Right. It is mostly because maybe the market is not, maybe it's finding value elsewhere or there are other extra factors that may be transitory that are currently, you know, sort of breaking it from a headwind point of view. So, so you need to also to be able to find opportunities where initial thought may be that I'm actually hurt and I'm taking pain. That there may just be an opportunity there where there's underperformance. And the opportunity comes through when you take a step back, go back to the drawing back in terms of why did I get into the stock? If nothing has changed and still the price is coming lower, then the opportunity is for you to actually buy in, right? Because if whatever is actually taking place passes through, then it will go up. And that's when you will actually harvest in a better value than perhaps what you did when you first got into it.
And then, yes, it's very, very difficult. It's very tricky. It's easier said than done. And then, yes, a strike ratio of, you know, five and a half, six out of 10. That's good. But as I said earlier, your own temperament, I think, should be, you know, one of your strengths in terms of why you should approach market. Don't get swallowed up in emotion. It's, again, easier said than done. But whatever you do, please allow yourself the opportunity to take a step back and reevaluate. It's not always easy to see that the conditions of a company or the prospects of a company have changed. You refer to it, you need to realize whether something has changed with the company and retail investors and especially amateur retail investors don't always have access to the latest data and the research reports. How would you approach it or what advice would you have for amateur investors to try and identify if something has actually changed, which would warrant a, a sale of the counter? Look, I think the, thankfully, I mean, the, the field appears to be leveling off in terms of uh, information access. So companies are required by the GSE to keep every shell informed and not disclose information selectively. So so that kind of takes, you know, part of you know, the care of the bad. But then I guess it becomes an issue of time, you know, whether you've got enough time to actually plow through the media, uh, the financial report, and actually read and listen to company results and actually understand what management say. But you kind of do that, you know, if you are invested in these companies, know them and know them very, very well to the point where if something has changed, you know, you are able to identify it. But for the average retainer, right, in terms of identifying what things have changed, you just need to be in the news, right? Just follow the news, see what's happening. Yes, some of it may appear to be too noisy, uh, too infrequent, but as time goes, as you mature in your own investment strategy, your own investment outlook, you get to learn to sit through the noise of things that are perhaps you know, topical, but not impactful in terms of the company itself. And that's when you become a lot more grounded. And that's where you get to learn to realize that actually this is a step change and therefore I should react. Or, you know what, you know, this affects every company out there. You should, you know, this also will pass. It actually presents a buying opportunity. So let me run a top up, you know, take a few profits where I've done well, and then I buy a little bit more here where I have underperformed. And hopefully as things normalize, you know, this one that has underperformed actually comes through quite strongly. Let's talk about your personal portfolio. First of all, do you have your own discretionary portfolio which uh, you manage? And if so, what are your main investments? So the rules, I mean, I'm not allowed to have a peer portfolio. And so what I do do is I invest my own money in my own unit trust that I invest with my clients. So the Aloha Top 25 Fund that I managed and I've been managing since 2011. That's where the bulk of my discretionary investments are. And it's you know, sort of a, a large cap biased type of portfolio. So I've got the usual names in there, the banks, you know, a few select resources, uh, mass pairs process, and you know, I guess like everyone else. And then a few other sort of a mid caps uh, where we do find quite a bit of value. So a bigger part of my discretionary portfolio is in there. And then the retirement funds also are you know, a big part of that is in there. And as I said earlier, I also have, you know, these guaranteed structures uh, where, you know, again, just low maintenance stuff uh, that gives you offshore exposure and rent and uh, also very tax efficient in that uh, you only attract capital gains because you are locked in for about five years. Let's talk about your best and worst investments ever. Let's start off with your best one ever. Which investment have you been the proudest of? 
So from a financial markets point of view, I think mass space for us actually did well. You know, we even got the timing right. And I was going to look at, uh, I guess, uh, early last year, which actually started underperforming. But for prior years to that, you know, if you look at the JSE and you look at uh, consistent outperformers you know, on a year-on-year basis, about 10 stocks actually did very well consistently over that period, over the 10-year period. And Maspair, Standard Bank, and you know, BTI, one of those that actually did very well. So, so Maspair, I think, it has been a bit of a cracker for us. The worst one, I guess, is now the uh, resources space. And I should look at the platinums. In fact, I mean, let me rephrase. The worst one was actually Aspen that we got wrong. You know, we got the timing wrong. When it was going up, you know, we were underweight. When it was coming down, we were full of it. So we just got hit on both sides. And, and from those things, you know, you kind of learn. You, know, you learn again and you should go back to the basics, uh, see what you're doing wrong. Uh, and then, you know, not, not, not be too emotionally drained, uh, which again, I mean, it's easier said than done. Uh, but, but yeah, I think those, those were the two, you know, best and worst ones uh, over my career. Then just lastly, do you regard the views of other professional investors? Do you value certain individuals' opinions more than others? But are there people you are following maybe on Twitter and take note of their remarks about the market? Yeah, I mean, globally, Mahomet El Arian, I follow quite, quite closely because it tends to have a different view, especially when you're trying to understand what's happening globally in terms of you know, whether the Fed or interest rates and the likes. So I follow him quite a lot. And then domestically, I mean, it, it kind of varies. Right? So, you know, there the are peers in the market uh, that I do chat with at a personal level that I think have, you know, you have unique insights. You know, someone like Delvin Gormanda, I think, you know, you know, has got very strong insights and very strong views across the market, but also across the industry. So it's not just a financial you know, investment point of view, but I guess it's the broader economy. And my own colleagues, you know, both internally, I think our fixed income guy, in terms of what's happening on that side of the market, uh, I find his views very, very you know, insightful. Same as the team. But I try to stay away you know, from Twitter and all the high-frequency stuff, simply because one of them at the time, but also because you tend to get very confused insights. So rather read and then have your own views, and if need be, you know, touch base with people whose views you, you value, and then hopefully inform your own views going forward. Did you ever read an investment book which had a big impact on your investment strategy and approach? Yeah, so one of the first books that I read, even before I was actually in the market, funny enough, was a book by Magnus Haystack called Money Matters. So way back in the day, I think there was a column in one of the weekend papers with Bruce Cameron, one of the journalists, and that book was offered as a prize, you know, to respond to that. So I got that. And it gave, you know, it is an overview of anything to do with finance, you know, how a bond works, you know, the power of compounding, how does compound interest rate work, you know, across the board, you know, buying property, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I found that very, very, very insightful. And actually, it was one of these initial seeds, aside from the stock market exposure, directed me towards being finance. So this was a way back. And then along the way, I mean, I've read quite a few. You know, the, the whole long-term capital management, uh, sort of uh, the collapse of, of LTCM. I've read Alan Greenspan's book, um, Accessible Exuberance. And yeah, I, mean, I am an avid reader of um, you know, anything to do with human behavior because I think that influences the markets and also it also informs my own behavior, you know, almost like a mirror 
where I can you know, critique myself and see you know, how I'm doing, just from a behavior point of view. And then lately, I've been reading uh, Freakonomics, you know, which is almost like an odd way of looking at economics. You know, it's not your typical macro, you know, micro, but just looking at different sectors of the economy and how they function from a sort of a ground swell, you know, economics point of view. So yeah, that's another point of advice I would give to anyone out there. You know, read, 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 and read as much as you can. From your lips to God's ears. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me and all of the best. That was Patrick Matidi. He is from Aluwani Capital Partners. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.